Alright, if you grab your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, Pastor John's got a few in the back. Just put your hand up. It's good to have a Bible today and every day. We are, as a church, going the way of the cross. And we're taking our time going through the Old Testament, looking at the cross. And you'll see up on the slide here that we have kind of taken some time and we were trying to get into the story here of the Old Testament and how the Old Testament points to Christ. We've taken time and looked at Abraham, Joseph, and we've spent a lot of time in Exodus. We are out of Exodus and spent time with Moses. And we're going to be taking some time looking. And in fact, if you want to write this down, the Old Testament, if you have your Bibles, you'll see there's the first five books, and we call that the law, the instruction, the Torah. And those are the first five books of the Bible. And often, if you, in your Bible, in the old or new, if you see the word law show up in capital L, with the first, you know, the first letter there, that typically stands for the first five books of the Bible, the law. And then you have a bunch of Old Testament writings. Some of them are poetry, songs. Some are prophets. We've got the minor prophets at the end there, 12 of them jammed up. But in reality, if you would go chronologically, there are only 11 books in the Old Testament that tell what we could say maybe the storyline of the Old Testament. There are only 11 books that cover the chronological story. It would be like this. Here we go. There's 11 of them. Genesis, Exodus, and then the next one would be Numbers. We, would, we wouldn't skip over Leviticus, but Leviticus is, again, just writing where Moses instructs, this is how you maintain relationship with God. It's not how you get relationship with God. The people have been saved, Exodus 14, the gospel message in the Old Testament. But Leviticus is written, this is how you maintain relationship with God. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Numbers... Then Deuteronomy is just two large sermons that Moses gives retelling the law in Exodus. And so there are two, he expounds on the law. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges. Then you have Ruth there, but that's just a story within this whole storyline. So it doesn't add to the storyline, the chronological aspect of the people of Israel. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges. 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. Then if you would read 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you realize, well, these are stories that have already been told before, so it's kind of overlaying 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, almost telling some of the good aspects where 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings kind of show some of the horrific events of that. And then the last two would be Ezra, Nehemiah. And that's the end of the Old Testament. All the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the minor prophets, you can put those all into the stories within First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and Ezra and Nehemiah. So again, the 11 books of the storyline, if we kind of map it out of the Old Testament chronologically, would be Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah. And that is the storyline. And that all points to Jesus. It's all set up for this 
waiting moment for the Savior to come, Jesus. And we are a part of this story by God's grace. Now, as we look through the Old Testament, we will see that there's a lot of Jewish culture and background that seems very different, very foreign to us. In a sense, it would be there's a big gulf between us or a big sound. There's a big difference between Bremerton and Seattle, right? Or Port Orchard, right? There's a, there's a big difference of mindset and people and busyness and just, I like looking at Seattle. I'm glad I don't live in Seattle kind of mindset. That's what I have. There's a big difference there. When it comes to the Old Testament, the, the gulf, the, the, the vast difference is even greater. So it's important that we take time sometimes to learn the forms, the backgrounds, which most of the Bible stands on. And knowing more about that culture helps deepen our understanding of the Old Testament and what was happening in the New Testament. Augustine said this, I love this line, The New Testament is the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is the New Testament revealed. It all points to, the Old Testament's pointing to the cross. Yet, this is very important. This is kind of something that, that's deep within standard evangelical Orthodox Christianity. It's not about just getting into the Old Testament, understanding the Old Testament, and having the Old Testament interpret the New. It's just the opposite. The New Testament interprets the old we look at the old testament we learn about the culture we learn about that and to understand the new testament yes you need to understand the old testament but the old testament does not interpret the new we see this because most of the jewish people did not realize jesus when he came we use the new testament lens to understand the old and interpret it We don't read the Old Testament to interpret the New, but we need and read the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. So as we go through the Old, we will see Jesus often. In fact, this is what one of my professors said. Someone asked him, would you ever preach out of Isaiah and never mention Jesus? He would say, why would I? Why would I waste my time preaching out of the Old Testament and never mention Jesus? Because it all points to him. And we're going the way of the cross. Because at the center of the Old Testament stands Jesus. So let's pray before we get into a passage of beauty. Lord, I thank you so much that you have given us your whole counsel, both old and new. We don't separate them and and try to pick and choose. This is your counsel. And we thank you so much that in the old It points to you. And Lord, I thank you that you, in this storyline, chose a person, chose a family, chose a nation. And Lord, you love the world so much that you open it up to us. And Lord, may today we see the beauty of you in the old again. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to Exodus. I said we're out of Exodus, but I want you to at least be there. You thought I'd say Romans, but... Exodus chapter 40. Genesis, the storyline goes. Exodus, we finally finish Exodus. The prize of the Israelites is that God 
would dwell with them. His glory would be with them. The presence of God, the Shekinah glory, dwelt with His people. Yet, they begin to be like themselves, sheep as they are, wander and grumble. And in the wilderness, God was consistently and constantly teaching them, this is important, teaching them stories about who he is through events, through acts of salvation, through things, all this. God is all about himself and that they would know him. Remember this. In the Old Testament, this is all about the people knowing him and knowing about their sinfulness. We've seen in Exodus, he brought them into the wilderness. And they go to the mountain that was revealed, God revealed himself to Moses, and they go there, and we spend a lot of time in Exodus 32, 33, and 34. And now they are going to the promised land. They're on their way. They're going, but the people hear reports of enemies. They send spies out to see what land is this like, and they get worried, and they're confused. And their faith begins to fail. Turn to Numbers. Numbers 14. They hear that there's giants in the land, they're worried. They have unbelief, and God sends them into the wilderness to wander around until that generation dies out. Numbers 14, 28 through 34 covers this. People grumble and complain, and God says, fine, I'm going to have these people wander around, they will die off, and we'll have a new faith within people that don't complain. How many of you have had children that have complained a little bit. If your children here, maybe hide your hand. Turn to Numbers 21. The Israelites are discouraged again. And in their unbelief, they turn against Moses and God. When the Canaanite king, Numbers 21, verse 1, Arad, who lived in the Negev, which is south, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atherium. He attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns. So the place was named Hormah. Now verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route of the Red Sea to go around Edom. So here they have to take a special route. They've just won this great battle. God heard their cry. He answered them. They should stop. Exodus 15 should happen again where they praise the Lord. They just won a battle. They want to go straight to the promised land. But now they have to go on a detour. 
They want the shortcut. Point A to point B. How many of you like shortcuts? I like shortcuts. I like microwaves. I like things that happen quickly. This great victory happened, and God said, you know what? You're going to have to go around. You're going to have to go the long route. And they have a huge detour. And listen to this. But the people grew impatient on the way. If I gave this sermon speaking like this very slowly for three hours, how many of you would grow impatient and try to get a pillow and fall asleep? We are an interesting creation, aren't we? We are so impatient. Sometimes when I look at my children, I just go, man, they're so impatient. And then I realize that's such a great reflection of their father. I am so impatient. (laughs) But the people grew impatient on the way. Verse 5. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, you've heard these complaints before. Why have you brought us out out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Doesn't it sound like one of maybe your journals, if you kept journals with your children? I mean, this is just crazy. This is what amazes me about the children of Israel. Keep your thumb here and turn back to Exodus 14. Just so you don't forget Exodus 14. Exodus 14 is, again, this great salvation event in the Old Testament. The people are in slavery, bondage, captivity, suffering. Baby boys are being killed. I'm not talking about today in America. It sounds very much like America, but... Then listen to this. Again, verse 10, as... Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us in the desert to die? Why have you done this to bring us to Egypt? Didn't we say to you, Leave us alone, we'd rather serve the Egyptians? It would be better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Okay? Exodus in the middle of chapter 14. And then what happens? God saves his people. He saves them in a miraculous, wonderful way. Chapter 15. Look at he just They praise God. Grumble and complain. Go back to Numbers 21. It's almost word for word. The people haven't changed. Even after salvation, some people can be lame, stubborn, and stiff-necked. Here's their problem, three things. Number one, they are impatient. They are impatient. That often leads to anger. Have you ever seen some of your children, possibly your grandchildren, they're impatient and you try to stifle that and contain that? It's a little crazy. If you don't know what that's like, visit my house once in a while. Impatience can lead to anger. Number two, they rebel. There's just this rebellion within them where they just, impatience leads to rebellion. Look at verse 5. They spoke against God and against Moses. 
why would they bite the hand that has fed them? They speak in rebellion against. Why have you done this to us? Again, let me just say this on the side. So often people forget the promises of God. The promises of God are sure. Great is your faithfulness. The love of God endures forever. But you forget that. When the darkness comes, the light turns off, you forget where the exit is, and you begin to just grow impatient and anger, and you wonder, God, why is this happening to me? And your eye is on the circumstance, not God. They talk back to God, they blame God, and they want to go back. Now that, at, when we read this, we go, well, why would they want to? Maybe in your life you understand this, or maybe you've met someone like this. This past week I was hanging out with someone who was in bondage. And this person had such spiritual oppression about them. As soon as I walked up, I was like, something is wrong here. And this lady was next to this gentleman, and he was trying to to pawn off something and try to get some money, and something was not right with her. And I tried to talk to them afterwards, and I could tell that there were serious issues. And I remember then some boys came along, and we were talking about God, and the God conversation came up, and they did not want that. And I was thinking, why would you not want freedom, true life? Why would you go back to that bondage? And part of my mind was like, you know, they haven't tasted freedom. If they tasted freedom, then surely they wouldn't. But here, we see that humanity has its way. People can taste freedom, and they want to go back. They want to go back. And the third thing, first is they're impatient. Second, they're rebellious. And number three, they don't appreciate what God has done. They're not grateful. They've given him food. We don't want leftovers. How many of you like leftovers? Raise your hand. Then come to my house, please. I, I'm the kind of guy that just, once in a while, it's true. Pastor Cody kind of, kind of, oh, leftovers again? Please. It's food. This is not just leftovers. They're just, they're complaining. They're looking for anything to complain and whine. Like spoiled children. Maybe you know someone that fits this category. They're impatient. They rebel. They complain. If you don't know who that is, get a mirror. Because most likely, in our hearts, we are like that, right? As the common phrase fits well, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Where is the heart of the people? Attitude. They have a bad attitude. So the problem is here, and then what happens? (laughs) Let me read this again. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous, poisonous snakes among them. They bit the people And many Israelites died. God sends 
poisonous snakes to judge the rebellious, stiff-necked Israelites. And the people began to die. And here's just a general name for snake. God sends it to them. And listen, remember this. God is just. His justice is always there. Even in Christ, there is justice. In salvation, there is justice because Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Someone paid the penalty. Justice is there. And God is just. People sin, people rebellious, fine. God is just. And this, this God sent them. And this send, this verb tense means he let go. It's not like he purposely said, all right, I'm going to design this specific snake to go after them. These snakes were possibly always around. In fact, I was looking at some of the historical writings outside of the Old Testament, and people talked about these types of snakes. They were around, but God in his provision, I believe, withheld these snakes. Finally, after their rebellious, after their complaining, he let the snakes go. That's kind of the way this verb says. He didn't send them, but he kind of let them go. He didn't hold them back anymore. He allowed sin to go its own course. If you read Romans a lot, you should. Romans chapter 1 and 2, you'll see this. There are rebellion, rebellious people. The wrath of God is there. He held on to this, and those people waiting for them to come to him, then finally he let them go to their own way. There's judgment. He allows sin to go its own course. And in this judgment, nothing will work. I'm a Midwestern boy. And we don't have poisonous snakes. We have mosquitoes that get really dark and fly around you and maybe pick you up and move you around. That's about as bad as it gets. Nothing can really kill you unless you maybe strap bacon around your hips and run through the woods and find a bear and you, it just doesn't work out. You know, that would probably be the worst thing. But we don't have deadly things in Wisconsin except the extreme weather. 20 below for a couple weeks, that, that, that can really get to you. We don't have creatures like this. And I remember I went on a missions trip to Texas. And I thought, wow, I'm going to Texas. This will be great. I like Texas. they got a lot of guns down there. they got some cool things. Big food, big everything. This will be fun. And my friend said, uh, there's rattlesnakes down there. Whoa, I don't like snakes. I really do not like snakes. So I thought, man, my grandpa got me cowboy boots. Because, you know, that's what I've heard and I saw in the movies. You wear cowboy boots and if a rattlesnake comes and gets you, you'll be fine. Cowboy boots will save you from the snakes. Gratefully, I didn't see any snakes in Texas, but I looked like a corn dog walking around with these cowboy boots. You know, I'm the Midwest. Well, I didn't know how to look the style. But nothing would save them. Even if the Israelites put on cowboy boots, put garlic around their neck, whatever they could try to ward off the snakes, when God's judgment comes, listen to this. Every type of man's remedy will fail. When God's judgment comes, every type of man's remedy will fail. God's judgment comes. Then look. The people came to Moses and said, of course they're going to come to Moses. We sinned. I love that. I'm sorry. We screwed up again. We sinned. We spoke against the Lord and against you. Why does it have to take snakes to wake up people? Why does it sometimes take punishment with my kids to wake them up? 
because we're humans. We sin when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prays for the people. And here, Moses intercedes. If you remember back in Exodus, when God's judgment is there, often someone steps in and intercedes and they lay hold of God's promises and out of that, God doesn't change his mind. He then goes from justice to grace and mercy. Remember this, God is just, but he's more than just. He's grace and mercy. The change that happens is he moves from justice to mercy. Moses prays for the people. Look at verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. How many of you have heard this story before in the Old Testament? Or know of the story of the bronze snake? This is what I find interesting. It's only a few verses here. It doesn't really add to the great epic story of the Bible. It's very peculiar. A bunch of snakes come out to some grumbling people. The snakes come, bite the people. Moses prays, and God says, make a snake, put it on a, a pole, and whenever someone gets bit, they look at the pole and they get healed. Well, that's kind of interesting. There's only a few verses, but why is this so great? Please listen to this. Moses intercedes, and God's grace comes in the midst of judgment. Look and live. Look at the means God provides for your salvation. Cowboy boots, you know, you can put garlic, that's not going to help you. You can do all you want, you can cut little holes and try to suck up the poison. No, that's not going to do it. God's way of salvation is the only way. And this little story is teaching the people about faith. I mean, it would be crazy to think that look at a bronze serpent and that saves you. Wouldn't that be great if you just go to a hospital and just look at this and you're healed? But Oh, I'm healed. Okay, you know. That just doesn't make sense. But God is all about helping the people understand who he is. This is an act of faith. God's plan for someone to be healed is to look at this serpent on the stick and they'll be healed. Look in faith at God's appointed way for salvation and it will happen. He has the remedy. And it's not the person's faith that saves them, but in God whom the faith is placed. So here's this story, and we could go on, right? Just a couple verses about this unique story, about this snake's but there is more. And let me just say a little side note. Many years later, the Israelites, when they're in the promised land, this becomes an object of worship. Listen to this. They take this thing and worship the bronze serpent instead of God. 
And then through one of the kings, Hezekiah, he opens a temple, gets this thing that they are worshiping, and throws it into Kidron Valley and just get rid of it. This has become an idol. It's an interesting story. But why has this become one of the most famous Old Testament stories? Because listen, the Old Testament is incomplete. It's not finished. The Old Testament doesn't really expound upon this. What makes this greatly remembered is because it's in the New Testament. Used by who? Jesus. So let's turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3 has probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. And this whole section here, I remember I was a little boy, I went to this school, ECA, and we had to memorize chapters of the Bible, and this was one of them that we memorized as a little kid. I memorized John chapter 3. And I never realized the beauty of this story. Here is the educated religious man of the time, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus by night, possibly because he didn't want to come during the daytime so all the people would see him, like, there he is hanging out with Jesus. But he had some serious questions. He understood the law. He knew the Old Testament, and some people realized that the Old Testament was pointing to something greater than what they had at the time. And here is Nicodemus. And we're going to look at this little story here, and we'll see how the Old Testament now shows Jesus. Because in the Old Testament, think of the story we just looked at. In the Old Testament, it was about physical life. In the New Testament, this is about spiritual life. And the significance of the cross as spiritual healing to the curse of sin. And let me read this here. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform these miracle signs as you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter the second time to his mother's womb and to be born. What are you talking about? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it passes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe them. How, then, will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Here we come. Verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Here's the verse. 
just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Now for me, I remember memorizing this as a little kid in the King James Version, so it's a little bit more wooden. I remember getting this point going, Jesus, you just compared yourself to a snake. What are you doing? It's kind of shocking, isn't it? Because my mind right away goes to, well, in Genesis, the snake is bad. So all snakes are bad. That's why I have, I literally do have this little pistol. I call it my snake pistol. I just don't like snakes. So why would he compare himself to a snake? But listen, the analogy is not the snake in Jesus, but restoration that comes from looking at God's way of salvation. The people would look at the bronze serpent and they would get life. When we look in faith, we get eternal life found in the Son of Man, Jesus. And there is no connection between the serpent and the serpent Satan spoken in the Garden of Eden. This symbolic snake represents God's choice to chastise the people of their unbelief and Jesus looks at this. Now a couple things that Jesus wants to show us in this story. And there's typology. And honestly, if I read through the Old Testament, just the Old Testament alone, and I read upon the snake story, I would just be like, oh, okay, nice story. I don't like snakes. Yuck. But Jesus when he's speaking with this ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus, who knows the Old Testament, he uses this story to say, hey, you missed something about me. Take a look. Here's what Jesus shows us. Number one, he is the only source of rescue. Jesus is the only source of rescue. You cannot save yourself. This past weekend, a bunch of us were, we had like a youth night, we were hanging out, sitting by the campfire, and we talked about heroes. We were talking about heroes, have you ever been a hero, have you ever seen someone be a hero, and then we were talking about, have you ever, like did anyone ever, have you almost died? We were talking about that, and I remembered there was one time where I almost died. I was a little kid, I was at this hotel, and the swimming pool was shaped kind of like a boomerang. So there was really no... You couldn't really understand where the depth was. I just jumped in, and I went straight down and looked up. Wow. And I didn't know how to swim yet. I was just probably four years old. And I just stood there with my arms kind of floating up going, whoa. I wasn't thinking I'm going to die or anything because I didn't have that kind of concept. And all I remember is a hand plunged in, grabbed my hand, and pulled me out. And I went, I was rescued. And then I realized, whoa, that was bad. I could have died. Then I finally freaked out. Jesus comes And he is the only one, the only means in which one can be saved. In religion, you cannot find salvation. Religion is man's way of getting to God. Jesus is God's way. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Buddha, Bahula Ula, and all the other people. No, only through Jesus is the only way to do it. He is the only way. He's the only source of rescue. The source of rescue from the poison of sin is looking in faith at Jesus. 
People were bitten by these snakes. How were they rescued? Looking in faith at the bronze serpent. Jesus says, now one must look at me in faith, and I will give eternal life. The only one who saves is God by the means of Jesus. Let's read these couple verses again. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that, so that, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands in stands condemned already. Listen, Jesus is looking back in the Old Testament saying, as they looked and lived, you need to look at me and live and have eternal life. And if you don't look at me, you will not be rescued. The second thing, this is a tough one. Jesus is portrayed as a curse. Jesus is portrayed as a curse. In the place of the snake, he's portrayed as the evil and cursed. And this is what's so shocking to me. Why would he take the snake? Why would he want to be the curse for me? 2 Corinthians 5.2, turn there. 2 Corinthians 5.2 Jesus takes my place For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin for us. Christ became sin for us. Galatians chapter 3. Turn to Galatians 3. 3.13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ became a curse for us. He's portrayed as a curse. Like the snake, he is now the embodiment of our sin and the curse. And he became sin for us. He took it away. He is the rescue and he became a curse for us. Galatians lays it out very well. And the next thing, and the last one here is this. He gives eternal life. Without the cross, we do not have life. Just in the Old Testament, if they were bit by snakes, if I would have been bit by a snake, I would have just, I would have, just the snake alone would cause me death. And I'm embarrassed to say this. On our honeymoon, we came out to the Pacific Northwest because it's beautiful out here, right? We spent five days at Cannon Beach and the rest we came up into Washington. Two weeks we spent out here. And I remember it was either in Washington or, or I don't know what, what state park it was. Maybe it was Ecola State Park. We were walking. And I'm with my bride. I'm all cool. Six foot four, full of muscle, walking down this path. 
with my beautiful bride here, and she wants me forever and ever and ever, and just is great. And a small gardener snake, probably about 12 inches, just goes across the path. And I jump out and grab her like I'm going to die. And there it goes. No longer am I the big six foot four full of muscle. And my wife is probably wondering, who did I marry? But I wasn't dead. It was just a gardener snake. It could have bit me a hundred times. I probably would have maybe little, little puncture wounds. That wouldn't have killed me. Are we truly afraid of spiritual death? Do we realize the reality of separation from us and God? There's many things that may scare you. For me, it's snakes. What truly is the most horrific thing to be separated from God? To not have eternal life with Him. But Jesus comes and says, I have come to give eternal life. Just as in the Old Testament, they looked upon this and lived, you must look upon me and live, and I will give you eternal life. Look upon the cross and God's provision, and you'll be healed from your sins. I love it. In the Old Testament, in this weird little story about snakes, I would just skip over. In fact, as a little kid, I might have just ripped that part of the Bible because I'm like, ooh, gross, I don't want snakes. But some obscure story, Jesus says, look, even here, I am shown in the Old Testament. The people needed to be healed from poison. You need to be healed from your spiritual sickness. A cancer fatal to your soul, as Charlie Peacock wrote. And this cancer is within us. And the only way you can be healed is through the cross. But let me just say this to some of you. Some of you are sitting there going, yep, great, yep, I already knew this connection. I'm sitting here. I've been brought up in the church my whole life. Yep, I like that story. Oh, I love how Jesus confronts Nicodemus. He's got this going. Ha, kind of nails him. Hey, look, you got to look at me. Oh, I understand that. Listen to me. If you think that it's just all about, yeah, yep, okay, I trust in Jesus, and that's it, and you carry on with the rest of your life as though nothing has happened, woe to you. You need salvation. This is, I'm saying you have to be saved every day. No, 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 I'm not saying that. But you need to truly hold on to this salvation. Believe it firmly. Well, I'm afraid maybe some of you have not. You're just tacking out, yep, Check that one. I've got that done. What's next? Without him, we have no rescue. Without him, we are the curse. Without him, we have no eternal life. So today, look again at the cross and live. I said this when I first came here as a pastor. I am a freak about two things. I'm a freak about the word of God. I love this book. I'm also a freak about the cross, number two. Every day I think about the cross. Every day when I get up, I think it's Good Friday and Easter, and I celebrate Jesus in the cross. Every day, think of the rescue that came to you. Walk in such a way where you just walk, and there's something different about you, where people walk up and they go, something's different about you. I've been rescued. 
I have turned to the cross. I've looked and I live. Let's pray.